Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Next up is my conversation with the writer Chaya Bhuvaneshwar to talk about her award-winning short story collection, White Dancing Elephants. As you'll soon discover in this conversation, even though we are primarily talking about stories and storycraft, Chaya is also a physician, scholar of Hindu epics, and a poet. I've uploaded two pieces by Chaya to the bonus archive that reflect some of her other talents. One, a poem, Geese, chosen by Joy Harjo for the Cutthroat Prize, and the other, a short conversation between us about the importance of singing for her, and then she sings for us. Both of these can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers, where you can learn about other benefits to becoming a supporter of the show. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer and physician Chaya Bhuvaneshwar. Bhuvaneshwar is a graduate of Yale University and Stanford Medical School. She's also a Rhodes Scholar who studied Indian poetic traditions and Sanskrit at Oxford. Bhuvaneshwar's work has been published in Tin House, Narrative Magazine, Lit Hub, Electric Literature, Michigan Quarterly Review, and elsewhere. She is the recipient of a McDowell Colony Fellowship, a Sewanee Conference Scholarship, and a Henfield Award for her writing. And she's here today to talk about her debut collection of stories, White Dancing Elephants, just out from Dzank Books, and winner of the 2017 Dzank Short Story Collection Prize. NPR said of White Dancing Elephants that Bhuvaneshwar's unflinching about the lives of those for whom identity is a constant battle and the act of being is an unavoidable challenge, but she doesn't ignore the beauty in their strength. White Dancing Elephants is a necessary book and one that introduces a gifted voice to contemporary literature. Amelia Gray says White Dancing Elephants is a searing and complex collection, wholly realized, each piece curled around its own beating heart. Tender and incisive, Chaya Bhuvaneshwar is a surgeon on the page, unflinching in her aim, unwavering in her gaze, and absolutely devastating in her prose. 
this is an astonishing debut. And Diana Abu-Jabbar adds, filled with dark music, nuance, and intelligence, White Dancing Elephants takes readers on a thrilling journey. In sharp takes, Chaya Bhuvaneshwar unfolds the complexities of race and gender, tragedy and eros. This unforgettable collection will hold its readers captive to the very last page. Welcome to Between the Covers, Chaya Bhuvaneshwar. Thank you so much. So in, in one interview, you say that if anyone had asked you during the 10 years you worked on these stories, what your stories were about, you would have answered race, queerness, sex, mythologies. And in your self-interview at The Nervous Breakdown, you ask yourself to describe your collection in four words or less, and you say lust, revenge, betrayal, justice. So I want to start with the opening story, the story that shares the title with the collection as a whole. So tell us why you decided to both open the collection with the story White Dancing Elephants and also name the collection White Dancing Elephants. I I love those sort of questions about process because it illustrates to me how little control I really have over it. And um, I think I just sort of felt my way there was a little bit of defiance because I'd had uh, a former writing teacher who's very sweet and meant this protectively, but said, well, whatever you do, don't publish White Dancing Elephants as a story because that's just too personal. Mm. And she uh, she is of a generation and grew up at a time when women were discouraged strongly from talking about miscarriage. Um, and so I think because that title story is a piece of autofiction um, and, and really did grow out of a, a moment of almost overwhelming grief that I experienced about a lost pregnancy, um, a lost child, um, it, 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 I think it, it marked a real turning point for me as an emerging writer where I really wrote without any care for the gaze or what really what anyone thought. And it was just out of this very um, core, urgent emotion. And I think if there's any belief about process, whether it's for ordering stories or writing or revising, I really do think um, doing what you have to to reveal the core driving emotion of what's at stake and why you're telling this story and you know, what you feel above all. I, I really do believe that. I think that that's, that's the key. That's the center. Hmm. Well, one of the recurring images in the collection is that of Ganesh, the elephant-headed deity that is the son of Shiva and considered both uh, the removal of obstacles and the patron of learning. So without exception, the protagonists in, in this book have formidable obstacles. They have to contend with sexual violence or racism or the pressures of parents to conform to age-old traditions, but they rarely, if ever, come across as victims. And so it feels like, in a way, they're operating under the aura of Ganesh, that they're Mm -hmm. actively engaged in overcoming obstacles. So I was wondering if you could speak to any deliberations that went into how you wanted to portray these women and what you wanted to either avoid or foreground in this around this question of of victimhood um womanhood and overcoming obstacles 
Well, I think one key obstacle that I started to allude to earlier as well is just the obstacle to even speaking your truth um, often as uh, as a woman, um, as a woman of color, in situations where there are so many tacit and and really in your face explicit discouragements from doing that. And I do feel like when I was younger, like when I was a teenage girl, the discouragement could be more open and blatant. And, you know, boys could say things like, I don't like girls who are smarter than me, um, which is I was reminded by by this great song that says, if you like girls who are smarter than you, if you've heard that on the radio, recent song. Um, and I think what's really interesting, though, is how those that obstacle to speaking your truth, that that active discouragement morphs through a woman's life and gets old, get, gets sort of, um, on the one hand, buried and people act like they respect you. Um, but then there's a certain internalized censorship that goes on. Um, I think it is interesting that I've had more female than male readers ask me, were you afraid of X person reading your work, Mm. whether it was parents, extended family, South Asian aunties, you know, like the the gossip keepers of the community and so on. Um, So I, I think the main obstacle that I find myself often concerned with is often obstacles to self-knowledge and your own acknowledgement of how you feel, um, as well as the obstacle to just simply stating it and then doing something about it. Um, So it is interesting. Maybe it's a little bit of a feminist reinterpretation of Hindu myth um, in that Ganesh is also the god of beginnings. Mm. Um, So... And there are prayers that I know by heart and say, but maybe there is that sense that I know I have in my writing overall of wanting so much to appropriate traditions that have oppressed us um, to instead, you know, really empower us. Um, So I think, I mean, I think there always are also external obstacles, but I do think we often have so much power than we realize so one way you frame the collection is about survivorship. And, and here's, a, here's something that you said um, previously. I, I am not just writing about survivorship as a sort of condition, but as a form of internal resolution, as one decision or series of decisions, as a form of self-determination, often at great and unexpected cost. Is, is that what you mean by survivorship when you say about um, tapping into maybe an unknown a sense of power that we don't realize we have or or tell us what you mean by by more about survivorship and how it um influences the narratives in, in this collection i guess it's a deeply held belief i have that um we retain the power of decision and i i guess i believe that in a fundamental way even to the point where like the night of Trump's election in 2016, I looked at the glass sliding door to my backyard and um, very calmly deliberated about how I could reinforce that door in case gangs of neo-Nazis came and tried to smash the glass, you know, a la a Kristallnacht here on American soil, which increasingly does seem like it's happening, you know, in many places. Um, 
and I, I found a strange calm in just that decision-making activity. Do I put boards against the door? What if we get rid of the glass door completely? What if we do something to the basement and put an alarm so that we would run down there if someone comes? And it was horrific. But at the same time, there was comfort. And there is always comfort in remembering, what can I do? I can think. I can decide. I can determine. So, so one, one of the ways I think the collection engages with su- survivorship at the beginning also is, is structurally. The, the first two stories are framed stories. They're stories within stories with characters either telling a story or reading one so that the act of storytelling is actually foregrounded in the story. And it reminds me of Scheherazade uh, needing to tell stories to stay alive. And, and I wondered if that was a nod in that direction, a conscious nod in that direction, and if you see storytelling serving that sort of function. Well, I think The Thousand and One Nights is so interesting because it illustrates, and I'm a little biased here, um, the way that the Persian and Urdu cultures uh, appropriated and reimagined so much from the Hindu epics. So there's a beautiful book um, by Rushdie uh, that he wrote for his son, who was nine at the time, Harun and the Sea of Stories. And he actually gives a nod to the predecessor of Scheherazade, which is um, the Kathasarit Sagara, um, the ocean of rivers, of seas, of stories. So I think the notion of framed stories is very big in the Hindu epics. Like you'll have someone um, from the Mahabharata, Yudhishthira, being told about other gamblers of the past because he's a gambler and it's a big problem, um, you know, through all these stories. And, you know, it's like stories within stories. And you'll be, you'll be told a story in which someone is telling someone else a story. And, but, um, and it's a little Borgesian after a while, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I think the frame story is... Um, something that at its best does not start as an idea, but again goes to a, a really um, core emotion. And I think of Maxine Hong Kingston in Woman Warrior and how she's telling a story in which she's telling how her mother told her both stories and which stories not to tell, not to reveal to others. I feel like her book had a big impact on me. Mm. I read that in high school and really thought about what it meant to hold stories as secrets. So even though we have this nested story structure, and I think you've already answered this, the stories aren't abstract or postmodern. They come from a tradition that's very different, even though it's got this nested story within stories. And if we return to the first story, your autofiction, uh, a woman in her 40, 40s having a miscarriage. And even though she's telling this story as, as an address to her lost baby, and from the very beginning, she's narrating a, an experience that's very bodily. We get blood and fetal tissue. It's not alighted over, but given to us with some detail. And it feels really contrary to the person who told you not to put it in the book or not to put it first, it feels like a bold and important beginning to me um, because it feels like we're going to move through this uh, a collection of embodied people in a bodily way and the, mostly in the experience of, of women in, in women's bodies. 
And you've written some nonfiction about the art of description, where you say that the art of description is fundamental to what makes fiction live, the critical element that makes us experience rather than know about a story unfolding. So I'm, I'm wanting you maybe to speak a little bit about how you employ description. And I know that's a broad question, but maybe you can talk about it in, in regards to this story in specific and why you would employ it in the way that you do. Well, I think, um, I mean, it, it calls up a bunch of different threads and I'll try to be true to each one. I mean, the craft um, essay that I wrote about the art of description was so inspired by A.S. Byatt's beautiful collection, the Matisse stories, and in particular, the Chinese lobster. And I remember her work also having an unexpected impact on me because personality-wise, you know, she's so sort of Iris Murdochian kind of, sorry to use the word, arid British lady who's even anti-Harry Potter, you know, so what did I have in common with her? I, who was just reading about Priyanka Chopra with great enjoyment just before I, um, but I think uh, she loves the visual as I do as well, the feast of the visual in writing. And I think um, it's important that it be coupled with other senses too, or it obviously becomes too static. Um, But I think that um, there's also this this thread in uh, philosophy that I really like um, from the language philosophers, Gilbert Ryle in particular, um, who talked a lot about knowing how versus knowing that and sort of experiential knowledge to use a clunky kind of term for it. But I definitely think it, it has so much to do with even how you write something that proves interesting to you and hopefully interesting to others that, again, it's not evolving out of necessarily thoughts about, you know, it's like a doing. And it's like Deborah Eisenberg said in this beautiful recent interview, I just, my hand starts moving on the page Mm -hmm. kind of thing. You're in it, you know, you're in it in order to discover afterward when you read it critically to revise it what it could or couldn't be quote unquote about you know so um i think the other reason that the characters in my book are embodied in that hopefully visceral way is um i don't see how you could go through medical training and not embrace that aspect of our reality you know to literally have your gloved hands in a human body, you know. And the vocabulary, too, that you get, you gain yeah. from a medical knowledge. Yeah. And hopefully, I mean, it, it, it did take a while. It, 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 I don't know that I could have written the stories the same way um, as like a second year med student. I think it helped to practice and kind of know what terms actually convey emotional resonance to me um, versus just saying these words because they sound kind of cool or something. Well, one thing that leapt out in that craft essay was that you mentioned really good dialogue can work like description. And I'd never heard that before. So I didn't know if you had any extra thoughts on that, but I would love to hear them if you did. Well, I think Zadie Smith's dialogue works like on the level of description as well. I mean, because you are sort of being told about sounds, you know, as well as getting a glimpse into character in an incredibly 
economical way, you know, in these five words that someone says and the 10 words that they leave out. Um, but I think just the sounds of them are sounds of an environment, are sensory details, so are descriptive. And I think that's important. I mean, and I thought about that a lot in, for example, a shaker chair, because the words that a psychoanalyst uses or a psychiatrist, which I am, our words matter a lot. And I don't know that we, after a while, we don't consciously select the words like, this is what I'm going to say, but we're so exquisitely mindful mm. of our words because words can heal and words that are not thought out enough can be ineffective or, God forbid, even harmful. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Chaya Bhuvaneshwar about her debut collection of stories, White Dancing Elephants. So one of the ways you use details really well in the collection as a whole is not just with description of what is happening for the main protagonist, but these peripheral details that end up being really, um, I think, crucial. And I can't imagine the peripheral details not being part of the story because they inform them so much. So some way there's this mystery and I think the way in which you'll drop in things that provide social or political context, but aren't overtly what the, the story is about. So in the first story, again, we get the protagonist addressing her lost baby, but we also get details like the slurs that are yelled at our brown protagonist, the news of a South Asian woman's body found dead in the river, and the mention of the Diamond Sutra scrolls, Buddhist scrolls that were stolen by a British man and are now housed in a museum in England. Uh, and none of these details are really on the surface what the story is about, but they deepen her sense of loss. Uh, I think the loss of the scrolls, the anon anonymous woman's loss of life, um, and, they, and they broaden us into sort of a, uh, I think, a social framework where her life is precarious and devalued. Other stories seem to take this same strategy, even where the focus is elsewhere. And so I, I guess I wanted to hear more if you had some thoughts about the use of description or detail specifically in, in this way, which feels like a way to um, make it beyond an uh, individual person's narrative. Well, I was thinking I really like wholeness and richness in um, in storytelling, including in short stories. And I was thinking of collections that I've loved recently. Um, and I was thinking of Jamel Brinkley's A Lucky Man in that same way, um, you know, particularly like stories, say, of two young men going to a party and there'll be some detail about a movie that year, a song not that isn't even playing at the party, but that provided some image that gave them a way to look at somebody. Um, I think that one reason the short story as a form is enjoying, I think, a real resurgence, you know, even commercially, like I'm not being told, oh, stories won't sell. I'm really not being told that. I think it's because people as diverse as Alice Munro and um, Lauren Groff and um, Nafisa Thompson, you know, have all shown us how you can put a world in a story. And it's my instinct to do that. And I think early on, there were other not teachers of writing, but friends who, you know, much older friends who taught writing to others and just were my um, 
you know, corresponding friend and took pity on me and would write to me about stories. And many times they said, oh, you should make that into a novel or they'd write, you have enough here for a novel. And I just really like the idea of seeing if you can um, formally make it work, you know, to build that world into a story. And one of the blurbs that really meant a great deal to me was from Anthony Mara, you know, who who felt that it w- was formally sophisticated, you know, to be able to do that. And I it really resonated that not only he as, you know, cishet white male author, whom I greatly admire, said that as did the drunken books podcasters um, who they reviewed my book recently and and they said that Mm. you know and I I'm always really heartened by the fact that you would think putting in a whole world would create a sense of in a reader a sense of ooh, I don't know anything about that but instead I think the fuller and richer and more telling you can make the details that shape the story. The more they say, oh, I, I know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. I know what that is. Well, yeah, also, I think that's fascinating. But it also feels like the the richness, the specificity, and the complexity work to keep the women from being seen as just victims also because you get to see all the other things that are going on. This is not the only defining or even the main defining moment of their lives when they're when they're the victim of of some f- form of violence and but you also portray them in complex ways also in the sense that they are seen perpetuating violence against themselves against each other as women so it's not like these stories are necessarily all stories of of solidarity uh, <laughs> like it's way more complex than that that is a word that makes me <laughs> chuckle yeah so so the story where this is, is taken to the greatest extreme oh, yes. is, is i think i know which one is Talinda. so tell us the, tell us the premise of this story and, and maybe how this took shape for you um well you know i think i mean i actually think two stories not just to Linda but a shaker chair which ends in this betrayal you know mm-hmm. I think that theme of betrayal I do feel like well we can only be betrayed in such an undoing um, devastating way by people who mean a lot to us um, from whom we have expectations and I know I myself really struggle with that that how much do I expect from other women of color? And um, there's an enormous amount of competition. And some of it's very sad because it does feel like there's a finite number of slots for a lot of things. And, um, you know, whoever's hair can be the shiniest and, you know, whatever it is, you know. And um, I have heard stories from friends with whom I do have real solidarity and I'm going to give the first of several name shout outs um Jen Baker the editor of the beautiful anthology Everyday People shared with me a story of disappointment betrayal from um a prominent woman of color um and I had experienced something similar. And so I was walking away thinking, what does it mean? But I really think all it means is that 
we're just as complex as anybody else. And we have our sister friends and we have our nemeses to use Roxanne Gay's wonderful image <laughs> from Twitter. And I know there are a lot of people who would pay a lot of good money if she just <laughs> published a book, all blank pages, except the first page listing out her nemeses. Yeah. You know, I would take a peek at that. People but... would pay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Hint, hint, Roxanne. Um, so I, I really think that um, on the one hand, there's that complexity of people hate whom they hate and love whom they love. On the other hand, I think in both Talinda and A Shaker Chair, where you get these very intense dyads in Talinda between two childhood lifelong friends, um, one South Asian American, one Korean American, the titles, the, the titular character, Talinda, being Korean American, Talinda Kim. And then the other story, A Shaker Chair, being um, between a Ugandan American. American psychoanalyst and her Indian American patient. I also think that hostility, betrayal is yet another form of intimacy, actually. And it's a way of being enmeshed. And I know in clinical work, I um, when I listen to stories of people talking about a wish for revenge or a wish to sort of do something to someone, the saying that I learned in my training was, then you might as well put your arms really tight around them and not let go because mm. it just enmeshes you. And actually the most liberating move really is often to genuinely try to love somebody from a distance because it's a different kind of love, mm. you know, without the heat in it. Well, maybe this would be a good time to hear a little bit of the prose from oh, Talinda. Sure. If, if... sure. Talinda. So here I am, sitting in the doctor's waiting room, hoping no one talks to me or intuits why I'm fat, when the door that says on the outside, do not enter, swings open, and Talinda storms out, not long for this world. The young blonde nurse stands there, bracing the open door with one hand, holding a clipboard with the other. We should have the results back any day, she calls, though it's obvious my best friend isn't listening. Later this week, do check, her voice wafts out, like she's a woman working in a shop, not an announcer of life versus death. Not long for this world. Don't say things like that. I would have pleaded with Talinda if she had said the words out loud, one of her usual angry and dapper turns of phrase. You'll fight this thing, I said, when she first told me she had stomach cancer, and for once she nodded, not ridiculing the cliché. But that was a year ago, before I became this wretched person, a woman sleeping with her best friend's husband, a woman waiting to take over a life. Aren't you full of surprises, Miss Narika Kandalwala, Talinda would have said. You're not as boring as I thought, if she had known. But Talinda herself doesn't know what her husband and I were, are, capable of. Cancer is what she's come to know. How its cells lived as shameless parasites of the body, the dark and mocking children who'd never leave home. Talinda could caution you about genes that whispered false instructions. Genes speaking louder and louder over rivers of gushing new blood vessels, those rivers mindless and cruel as they crossed in confusing directions of their own, greedily serving the cells of destruction. 
This is to Linda Kim and what she's been given. Age 37, Korean-American, born to a waitress in Flushing, board-certified internist and geriatrician, married, no children, signet cell gastric carcinoma, stage 4, prognosis, 6 months. 6 months. If I weren't betraying to Linda, I'd use what I know for her benefit. My arm around her shoulder, I'd describe Audre Lorde's cancer journals, her dignity, her hope. And then to Linda would be forced, as usual, to turn on me with her mix of affection and contempt, the potent and honest combination that I've always counted on. She might say, Narika, you don't win any points for reading some poor woman's private diary whose problems you can't even understand to begin with. It's amazing how you're trying to read books for a living. At some point, you have to stop going to school and get a job. At some point, you have to accept it. The real world isn't made of poetry. I'd urge her on in making fun of me. I'd do anything to distract her. Talk about Dadaist art or North Korean politics or Betty Davis movies, her favorites. Now Voyager with a childless Betty Davis trying to make do by being a cool aunt. Of human bondage, Betty as the pregnant, vulgar, coercive, determined Mildred. All about Eve. What it is like to have your life bit by bit stolen by a woman you trusted. But all I do instead is slink down in the passenger seat of Tolinda's black bends, hoping she doesn't really notice me. If I loved Tolinda, really loved her, I'd tell her that her husband seduced me and vice versa, that the three of us should get far away from each other, that she deserves a better life, friend and lover. If I were good, I'd exit pursued by a bear." My affair with her husband began six months ago, well after she'd been diagnosed, after she'd tried to keep working as if nothing were happening, but was fatigued and couldn't stop losing the weight. I gave in after George called me in the middle of the night, crying for me to come help cook something she could eat, after George and I started meeting up in grocery stores, hospital cafeterias, places where we could help to Linda together while she was going through surgery and modified chemo. Tired by marriage, or maybe by his marriage to Talinda specifically, with all its burdens, the heaviest of which was extreme privacy, George pulled me in. The lingering touch on my arm, my back, my hand, the grateful smiles that never felt straightforward. Then his expression when I told him how I'd tried and failed a few times to have a child with donor sperm. I know what it's like to hope and be disappointed, he'd said, to wait and want and not have children, to be the only people waiting in the world. Believe me, I know what it's like. George and Talinda tried a lot, too. It wasn't clear now if her in vitro might have speeded up the cancer. She would have kept trying. George was the one who couldn't try again, unable to bear how relentless she had become. They'd just gotten to the point of discussing adoption when her new symptoms started. Then Talinda had to tell George that she'd never make him a father. Today, 
waiting for Talinda to be done at the clinic, by avoiding certain patterns of thought, by walking fast whenever I pass by mirrors, by keeping in my mind an image of Talinda not loving George, never really loving him. I made it all right that I would be the one having George's baby. Just for a few seconds, I told myself that once I started really showing, I would tell her this was a baby conceived from donor sperm. I'd accept it when she teased me about using the sperm of a white man. But it's possible Talinda will be gone before the birth and never know my baby is half white. We'd have our joy once she was gone, once our Talinda had risen fully out of reach. High in a white palace, the king's daughter, the golden girl. That image from a book the two of us read in high school, from an old story of infidelity and careless, childless adults. By thinking of Talinda as always being high above me, I could sometimes think of her as being untouched by what I had been doing with George, like she had too much pride to be hurt by it, like she had better things to do. But here I was, a little more than four months pregnant with a boy, with George's son. We've been listening to Chaya Bhuvaneshwar read from her collection, White Dancing Elephants. So there's a sort of an eternal question that I keep expecting to get tired and retired uh, that seems to be asked more often to women than men. And that's the question of character likability. And when I was looking at (laughs) other interviews of you, it rears its head multiple times. Uh, So I I guess I wanted to hear your response. I mean, I don't feel like your characters are are unlikable because they're doing despicable things. But when when someone points out these things, say a dying best friend, um, so someone sleeping with a dying best friend's husband, a father who neglects a disabled daughter, uh, and equates these acts and character flaws with quote-unquote unlikability and asks what draws you to this sort of character, how do you respond to that question? Well, I mean... I do agree with you that there is a burden on um, women writers in terms of likability, unlikability, and it calls to mind something very interesting that um, Meg Wallitzer had this op-ed in the Times years ago, like I think like the 90s, about... um, the sort of second shelf, you know, the second shelf occupied by writers who are women who are designated as women writers. And um, I know writer friends of mine have used the term lady writer in a very contemptuous way, you know, and I'm not I'm not completely sure what it means, except if you're scared to write about blood or betrayal, you might be a lady writer. I don't know. I'm not, apparently. But um, I think that I think it's fair to be outraged on behalf of the characters who are victimized and betrayed. Uh, It was very interesting. I had um, friends of mine read a Shaker chair and sort of, which was Sam Sachs's favorite one in the Wall Street Journal, which is pretty interesting. And they, these friends of mine who were women of color as well said it was sort of painful to read, um, how deeply one woman of color can devastate another 
you know, um, whereas he enjoyed it and said it was pleasantly devious, you know, and compared some of the scheming of these characters to Patricia Highsmith, which I took, which I was really complimented by in some ways. Um, so I think it's this, that um, there are different points in every human being's life where we can't spare thought for likability. And I'm really interested in those moments mm. because that, not only because of the honesty that's involved and in sort of showing, okay, what will you do then? You know, like I actually think, although I love um, that zombie movie with Brad Pitt, you know, um, World War, whatever. Yeah. World War Z. Um, I don't think most of us would act the way he does with that incredible nobility and collectedness, even if we had his skills. Like, I think a lot of people going into the, like the scene, he goes into this family's apartment, they let him and his family in, and he encourages them to move with them and try to escape together. But that actually creates more peril for his own family because then the zombies bite them and the, they become zombies, try to attack his family. I actually think most people would go in there knowing that to survive you move and deliberately not tell those people that mm -hmm. so that there'd be more resources for them in their own family. I believe that. You know, well, I I, th I think you're right that that <laughs> most of your characters are at a moment when they can't give a concern to how they appear or how how likable they are because they have other more pressing concerns than likability. But one of my favorite characters has a different scenario, and that's maybe my favorite character is the biracial black therapist, who she's worried that she's being racist towards her Indian client. She thinks this Indian woman smells. And yet she's also drawn to her and unsettled by her in a way that is charged and maybe even mysterious to her. Um, and I love this tension between the racism the therapist experiences inside and then also her desire to provide a service and keep a professional demeanor uh, because she has a self-awareness of what's happening inside of her. She's not trying to be likable, but she is trying to be professional against her impulses, essentially. So I was hoping maybe you could read um, a couple paragraphs uh, about her therapist philosophy for us, and then I want to ask you a question. You can't become a therapist by being nice, Sylvia would have said, if she were still 16 or 22 and not age 47, and therefore past debating with her mother. But mother's empathy rankled. Fine to have empathy if you didn't have patience seeking to devour you. Fine to have kindness if you couldn't be ruined. Any decent therapist knew that being too empathic got in the way of being a therapist. You couldn't be soft. You had to fend for yourself. Sylvia had wasted enough time earlier in her career on rumination and compassion for difficult patients. In her ridiculously detailed care for others, she had missed out on her own life. Acknowledged or not, in psychoanalysis there usually was the smell of blood. People were brutal when exposed and vulnerable. People could hurt, especially when they were trying to take from the therapist what their own parents had not given them. They'd strike out if you didn't watch. Keeping up your guard while smiling warmly, that was the ticket. I love that. And I love how that sort of completely subverts 
the general public's notion of what a therapist might be doing or thinking. And I also imagine as a psychiatrist yourself, that must have been a really particularly delightful story to write. But I guess I wanted to know, I don't know if you do therapy in your practice, but I, I wanted to know if you, um, your own thoughts with regards to the perils of empathy, if, this, if there's any ways in which your own thoughts um, intersect with this character's thoughts. Well, I, I really appreciated writing um, an essay for Medium uh, several months ago, Behind the White Coat, and I have another essay coming out in Long Reads precisely about this sort of calibration of mindset as a doctor, as a psychiatrist, who actually I, I do mostly more acutely ill patient care. Um, which is which I find very meaningful, um, but there's always a psychodynamic therapy component to. I would argue any doc, you know, like the the primary care doc in a small town who's just sitting and listening to somebody, you know. Um, I, I I how do you calibrate being actually doing that work versus writing subversive things about characters, some of whom do some kind of health-related work. And I think for me, um, the boundary is what makes it so sustaining and, um, and nurturing, truly, because I think I um, am freer on the page to kind of cackle with glee at people doing terrible things because I know that um, there's such structure and um, care in what I do as a job. And there's a sacredness. There truly is a sacredness to it in that I'd never put any kind of actual clinical scenario that I'm thinking about or talking about with colleagues or reading about in an academic way into any kind of a fiction. And um, this story was actually really inspired by thinking a lot about Idi Amin in Uganda and what it had meant for him to target Indians in Uganda and call us roaches, want us out, you know, really, really instill and uncover this belief that a group of people are the problem. And I wrote this story before Trump, um, but revised it since, you know, had to do the revision since a little bit. And I'm sure some of that um, dread and deep sadness worked its way into it that what does it mean when you're a person of conscience, a progressive person like Sylvia is, you know, with her um, Buddhist sittings and, you know, um, but on some level has reactions to people who belong to that group that she learned from her Ugandan father. Yeah. I mean, I thought that detail was so great. And another way we were talking about earlier about these these details that are dropped in that feel like they're peripheral but ultimately feel uh, uh, like that you it's impossible that they couldn't be there and in this case I love the detail of that so you 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 inform us about the history of the uh, expelling of Indians from Uganda but also that American black nationalists were supportive of the expulsion of Indians yes. from Uganda because they really worshipped Idi Amin. Yes, and so yeah. that's an interesting thing that takes this very um, interpersonal relationship: black therapist, Indian, 
uh, client uh, and makes the biases something more than um, personal, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it becomes like the, the acting out of something collective. And I, I think so much of what we do is that. And for me, that's helped me find um, both some level of hope and hopefully some empathy, um, you know, for people who are wearing those MAGA hats, which now my friends and I have a joke that say, um, you know, um, make a-holes get arraigned is what MAGA shouldn't, but anyway. um, (laughs) I like that. But, um, you know, I mean, they have a context. And it was was interesting um, reading some of the fiction by uh, military recent active duty, like Phil Clay's beautiful redeployment. Um, I think there's a sense of a lot of different white subcultures in this country who had been feeling silenced and unheard and not necessarily the subcultures described in, you know, things like Hillbilly Elegy, which I, uh, there, there are alternate books that describe that demographic and economic situation that I would recommend above that one. But um, I think I think there's something fundamentally not chosen by at least in in at least part of how we view and interact with the world. I I do believe that. So then in the question, what do we do with it? You know, how do we then evolve a way to interact with other people that's really loving? You know, I I think that remains a challenge. You mentioned a couple uh, pieces you wrote about your your medical practice. And I wanted to read a couple of quotes from them and then ask you a question in relationship to this. So you said, I learned in medical school and residency that so much of being a doctor, even with no patients in the room, would involve obeying a repressive code. We'd be expected to be as neutral as possible so nothing would impede the machinery of care that depends on us yet dominates our lives. We'd be expected to nod silently, always, rather than launching impassioned defenses of any idea that might get in the way of the reality of the patient's needs before us, of the system's demand that we simply perform. And then you also have said, a doctor's friendly, watchful, generous silence is one instance of self-effacement among many. Another involves keeping your voice and face free of outrage. This no matter how egregious others' microaggressions can be, especially for a woman of color in medicine. This, no matter how many times and by how many different authority figures, we might have been promised that such transgressions, such racist or sexist or intersectional indignities would not happen again. This, no matter how much we might have invested in ideas such as quote-unquote equality, this is how the system protects itself. And I, I, I don't know if you want to add more to that sentiment, <laughs> but I did think about the tension of this therapist and then the tension that you hold in, in creating um, a place of self-effacement for your patients, even if you are ultimately being the recipient of racism or sexism or some other uh, uh, 
micro or macro aggression on you at the same time, how that there must be some satisfaction, I would imagine, in allowing some of those thoughts free in your fiction and allowing this character, this this therapist to have the thoughts and and to go into the interiority and to like expand upon them in a way that you might not be able to expand upon them in in real life in the moment. But I don't know if I'm being presumptuous, but I want to hear more about about that. Well, I think medicine has evolved. You know, medicine has changed in the last couple of decades, including psychiatry. And I think of, um, in particular, a beloved, beloved supervisor um, who was a very revered analyst who would deliberately teach trainees to have a mental image of an axe (laughs) that he would encourage them to imagine was hanging by the door. And then when certain patients said really outrageous things, you know, like, you're a doctor, how come you're fat? Or, you know, um, when was the last time you brushed your teeth? Or, you know, something really like you're sitting there and you have to take it, you know, and you kind of smile and nod and say, let's think about why that's coming up for you right now. You know, um, he would encourage his trainees to literally take the ax in their minds after the patient had left the room and do whatever with it in their minds. <laughs> you know, I think that's hilarious. And that sort of analyst, um, you know, at, um, you know, the traditional... Boston hospitals, you know, um, they trained Sylvia. So one of the things I wanted to try to communicate is how in all the professions, and I think we see this, you know, even in popular culture, like scandal, you know, the Kerry Washington character, there's an old, older white male who's constitutive of how we think and operate. In, in some fundamental way, like she looks different, I look different than them, but they made us actually, you know, so these older white male, almost invariably straight supervisors who um, are terrified about Me Too now and think back to all the things they said and all the things they did and, and, and shake, you know, they made us too. And they gave us something. And I really hope those traditions can live. But at the same time, medicine has changed in the sense that there are therapies that have evolved where, you know, like dialectical behavioral therapy developed by a woman psychologist, Marsha Linehan, written about in The Times, where you learn in the therapy to be transparent in a certain way with your patients. And the act of transparency removes any need for those kind of acts fantasies. So you can just say as one human to another, listen, um, I, I value our work together so much, but what happens when you page me six times in an evening over a two hour period is that I get two hours late to give dinner to my kids. And then it becomes harder for me to think about sustaining this long term. And I'd like to be with you for years and decades. I I really want to be there for you. And this is how it's actually obstructing me from doing that. So you're revealing I have kids, I have a life, but not in a way that places a burden, right? You're just saying as one human to another, let's work something out. So when you page me, I really know it's a signal of urgency. And there are these 10 other things you can do when you're just bored, You know, Mm -hmm. so I I definitely think medicine has changed and been enriched by more diverse practitioners. Um, On the other hand, 
I think that what will never change and what I hope never change is something called patient-centeredness, that it is the beauty of medicine that no matter who you are or what you believe or, or what you've done, um, you get to have, you get to be counted first when you're in the room with a doctor who's supposed to take care of you. Mm-hmm. You are number one. You're not number one in the sense of the customer always being right, which is what insurance companies are trying to make it for us, which I really dislike. You know, you're number one on a spiritual level. And when I'm a patient with my doctor, I get to be number one, you know, and I, I'm, I think I'm part of a vanguard of um, women of color physicians and allies and others who particularly feel that it's important for marginalized people to to feel that in the room because one of the reasons there's been so much historic distrust and superstition, you know, ranging from vaccine refusal to conspiracy theories about HIV, which still have made it um, a an active problem and not just a chronic illness in minority communities is the fact that for years, you know, really before the 1980s, let's say, um, there were many, many egregious examples of marginalized patients, poor patients, patients of color, not really being treated like number one, you know, people who did Medicaid fraud, you know, exploiting these patients, lying about treating, like all kinds of horrors within medicine. So I don't blame them for being suspicious, but that means a great deal to me, um, where I'm at least for, for some period of time in a room with a patient, wherever that room is, they can be number one and, and know that I mean it, you know, because of what I believe, not because of, it's not, it's not personal, but it's not impersonal, you know? Yeah. And one of the things that I really appreciate about your your wealth of knowledge in medicine as it comes to your writing is that we also get people who are ill or, or struggling with a disability or some other aspect going on in the story. It's not about that, but that happens to be part of their existence. And so it becomes a, a crucial detail that informs character without necessarily the story story being an illness narrative. But I was I was curious about um, writer doctors uh, and this there's a long lineage, obviously, Chekhov, Bulgakov, uh, William Carlos Williams. And then there are wonderful contemporary literary medical nonfiction writers like Siddhartha Mukherjee and Atul Gawande. Um, and I wondered if there were any in particular that influence you in your writing. Well, I've I've loved all those folks that you mentioned. You know, I um, I feel like I'm a little controversial in that. Yes, there are many moments of misogyny and problematic ways of looking at people in Patterson, but I still love William Carlos Williams mm-hmm. completely. Really love him. Um, love his sensibility um, and imagism, and um, I think Atul Gawande was very brave in the honesty of his writings on medical error and kind of grappling with those things. And I can't even imagine most residents, most trainees writing the way he did when he was writing these New Yorker essays and he was still a surgery resident, you know, that was very brave. Um, and he's been very kind as a, as a writer also in Boston. Um, 
but I think one, um, one writer I feel like who isn't mentioned enough, who is a writer doctor with a lot of humanitarian accomplishments is Nawal El-Sadawi, um, Women at Zero, and an activist against female genital mutilation. Um, she's, she's really a model in many ways because on the one hand, she's writing from her own personal emotions and history, which is what I always want my writing to be about. There, it's not that I'm number one in that everything's autofiction because it's absolutely not, you know, it's not interesting to do that to me. Um, I, I, it's more all the characters reflect preoccupations, reactions, emotions that I've had just as a person independent of any kind of professional identity. Um, and she, you know, Women at Zero is about traditional Egyptian society and what that has ha, was like for a woman who became a doctor when there were very few women doctors. Um, on the other hand, her activism to prevent traumatization among women who are being forced to undergo FGM was is has been so much a part of how she construes being a psychiatrist mm. you know that look at the psychological damage you're doing to people look at what you're doing and making people look at something in a certain way um speaking with the authority of her training i think that's really ideal you know and there's a beautiful documentary about her that i encourage people to look at i'm glad you mentioned a woman because I I was noticing that most of the the writer doctors that are mentioned, if not all, that are often mentioned, are are exclusively men. Do you have any Do you have any thoughts on why that might be the case? Well, I mean, some of the thoughts I have are kind of sad, thinking that they just don't see us. You know, like in general, women in the room, women writers in the room, are just often unseen. And Lauren Groff, who was so generous as to blurb my collection, has written and spoken so eloquently about this, you know, that somebody raising their hand and talking about, well, how do you manage writing with your parenting skills, you know, kind of already assumes that you're not the great man writer for whom a path must be cleared so that your genius can come to light, you know, Um, so... I don't know. I mean, I also love the way I yell at Waldman, who's also been wonderful. I interviewed her for a a local magazine, um, has really parsed the expectations of mothers, writers, you know, and said their likability expectations there, too. Um, But I think, you know, some of it's logistics, too, that it, it is really hard. It is really hard. And I think another person who I really admire is Perry Klass. Um, She has been a practicing pediatrician for a really long time. Uh, Before that, I think she did some graduate school in cell biology and wrote a delicious book called Recombinations, which I encourage everyone to pick up. It's a slim novel, very racy about people in a lab recom- recombining, you know, <laughs> very racy, um, I love that idea. you know, and like old, you know, I, I picked it up in the med school library, like, what's this? And I was like, oh, you know, um, <laughs> but I think I, I just think it's because it's hard, but also because it's women writers. And um, 
even the buy the book lists that Lauren points out, why aren't there more women on those lists? You know, it's all over the place. Well, tell us a little bit about, you've mentioned an uncle who had artist aspirations, but also was struggling with um, some psychiatric issues. And there's a way in which that was influential for you. I think it may be even in a career way. I'm not sure, but per- also enters your writing. So tell us a little bit about this this aspect of your family. As as you mentioned, you like stories that mine the personal, not necessarily literally, but in this right. case, perhaps literally. What was going on with your uncle, and how did how did that impress something on you? I think like any family secret or family shame is always a wound that writers look at, and you know try to understand and kind of often walk around, you know? Um, so I feel like a lot of really amazing stories start from something you find out happened in your family that no one talks about. And so really for a long time, no one talked about the fact that I, you know, this uncle who is well at times and impaired at other times, certainly not ever functioning in terms of having a job outside, you know, um, had what's called first episode, you know, first episode psychosis when he was fairly young, like in his, I think his mid twenties. And, um, it, in a, in a family of, in my mother's family of sort of self-identified academic achievers and, um, you know, lots of, doctors and a diplomat and um, a zoologist. And, you know, it it was, I think what really moved me about his plight as I myself struggled to think, what am I going to do in the world? Who am I going to be? Was this idea of being made to feel like a failure, not because you actually are, but because you can't run with a certain pack. You know, it's like in high school track team, Mm -hmm. I had to find the pack of girls who I could train with who were better than me. And then I was better at them sometimes, but not so much better than me that I was left running by myself. You know, Um, so I always wondered what it would have been like. um, I mean, because there are there are studies that show that, um, you know, the majority of Iowa writing program students have a first or second degree relative with bipolar disorder. And so who, who they're thought to have some of the traits of bipolar disorder, but they're celebrated for their function or like Catherine Harrison, the writer whose work is beautiful, I think um, is open about her bulimia, you know, um, Esme Wajin Wong is a great example of a woman who thank. God, you know, was able to really create art precisely from that place of mystery of what is my place in the world, given that I do hear voices sometimes and, you know, or the, what, what we're going to get to read about in the collected schizophrenias, which I can't wait for, I can't wait um, you know, but I, I, I always wonder about that, that um, the tragedies or at least what feel like tragedies because the person is suffering a lot that are artificial and maybe man-made and circumstantial and did it have to be that way Mm -hmm. and i i think and pray that a lot of times 
no, they didn't have to be that way. And even though all of us are vulnerable and, you know, there are fires in California right now and who knows what's happening with the sun and a lot of bad things are happening that we can't control. I, I do really feel like just having a level of acceptance for neurodiversity, other forms of difference. Um, I really appreciated the NPR reviewer said difference beats at the heart of this collection. If we can honor that, can there be less suffering and, and take away some of the tragedy? Well, maybe this is a weird segue, but if we take this idea of difference and we, and maybe this is similar to the question of likability and likability, but you, you've said that a, a certain type of story about immigration between India and the United States has taken up all the oxygen in the room. That that the immigration story has been co-opted by readers looking for curry, quote unquote, looking for curry. <laughs> and I'm not entirely sure what that means, but I am imagining it's a very simplified form of difference or there's not a lot of diversity or uh, of representation within looking, quote unquote, looking for curry stories. But what is a looking for curry story? And how are you not, how are you either not writing one or subverting the idea of one? Well, I, I love, um, I have to give credit to um, Nubben Ruthnam, who's, who really kind of brought to the fore this idea of the Curry narrative. And I think um, Jenny Butt is a wonderful essayist who um, deliberately tried for her Pop Matters feature, um, including my book and the work of four other story writers, um, books that deviated from that narrative. So I will say that um, the way I construe that sort of Curry narrative is um, a little bit of what a lot of South Asian writers, I think, had been encouraged to do writing in the diaspora before Jhumpa Lahiri, who changed that narrative in beautiful ways and complicated it to the point where you get the lowland and her engagement with Italian culture and language and kind of her F you to don't tell me what to write about, you know, um, but I think before then, the way it went was one of a couple possibilities, like somebody's trying to avoid an arranged marriage and dating an American boy is wrong for them to do because the parents said no. And then there's conflict. And then either the parents accept it eventually or in I think the more interesting version of the Curry narrative, somebody gets beheaded, like death of a princess, but <laughs> wow. I, those don't sell. Um, but I mean, um, there's some kind of very simplified view of intergenerational conflict that oversimplifies most egregiously, in my mind, the empathy and the capacity for empathy and understanding of the older generation and I thought Mira Nair is actually really good at subverting that. There's this moment in an early movie of hers, Baji on the Beach. Baji refers to like a fried kind of savory um, dish. Uh, and it's like they're eating it on the beach in this um, sort of field trip of South Asian women uh, to Brighton Beach in the UK. And there's this woman who... Um, is being beaten 
by a really good looking and on paper perfect romantic hero type of husband, you know, the kind that white women say, oh, he's so handsome, you're so lucky. Um, And, you know, this kind of Omar Sharif kind of guy is really a monster. He's really a monster. And this beautiful um, woman is wearing all this clothing to hide the bruises and stuff. And there's this granny. Um, I love her. I wish she acted in more um, movies, period. You know, one of these women who's easy to caricature as, oh, she'll be shocked by anything you say or do. And she, she, she and her older friends see the bruises. And they're the ones who tell her, kick him to the curb, you know, and they're the ones who say, get get out of here, you know, to him. And I'm trying to remember, I think they even get violent and they like try to say, get out, you know, don't do this. So I think that's the fundamental flaw of a kind of curry narrative that says in order to have freedom, you not only have to be in America or be in the UK, be in Europe, but you have to adopt your new country as your new family because you can't find empathy, understanding, or complexity in your family of origin because they're old world. Mm. And so that's that's where I think Jhumpa Lahiri does such a beautiful job um, in her first collection with a very empathic portrayal of that quote-unquote older generation. And mm-hmm. then in the second collection, which I adore, Unaccustomed Earth, doing an even better job, I think, you know, with richer, longer stories. Um, and and then I, I think that that's what it is. I think any sort of predetermined narrative that tries to force you into oversimplified characterizations, that's just really limiting and demeaning to you as a writer, I think. Well, I want to ask you about a characterization of your work in the LA Times. They they look at your book through the lens of choice, uh, saying that the women in White Dancing Elephants are reckoning with the decisions, missteps, fears, and compulsions that have brought them to their current juncture, and that you're entering a time-honored tradition in Indian American literature around choice. Uh, writers in India and the Indian diaspora who play with the tension between the Western myth of quote-unquote free will and the traditional Indian constraints of family and community. And then the article quotes Gogol, who said, the reader should realize himself that it could not have happened otherwise. And that's the epigram at the beginning of Jhumpa Lahiri's, one of Jhumpa Lahiri's books. So the Times places you in this tradition saying, you update it for a contemporary America. <laughs> and I wondered, does this characterization of your work being placed in a specific vein of of Indian and Indian American literature, does that ring true to you? And if not, why not? It's always kind of a double-edged thing, you know, because you're really grateful to be with a tradition of writers that, frankly, have been published, have been read, you know, have been widely praised. So you feel like, um, I mean, I'm not going to be surprised if, um, I mean, no one has said readers of Jhumpa Lahiri will just love da da da. And I'm glad we have progressed. And now people say readers of Kelly Link or Carmen Machado will love da da da. So I, I love that. That's great. You know, um, I, and I like being grouped with other women. And I think I do think um, I, I re- what I appreciated the way I read the L.A. Times review as well is looking at feminism 
in terms of choices that women make and, you know, women kind of stumbling over choices, making some choices, having to live with consequences, like the Kirkus Review talked about, it's aftermath, you know, you're, you're dealing with this aftermath. I think that's um, universal enough. So I think that is that was on my mind, I'm sure, you know. Um, and then I think in terms of my relationship to other South Asian writers, I guess the way I feel now is I'll take it as long as it doesn't constrain me. So I've been asked by South Asian interviewers um, more than once, were you scared to write about that? Or were you worried so-and-so would read it? And I enjoy really now saying, no, not at all. You know, I, I really could care. No, yeah. I care for them to read it if it's going to be um, enjoyable to them. But if it's not, then um, I, mean, I, haven't, I haven't gotten negatives. So I also think that it's very funny, but I think... There are many South Asians who are in tech and professional jobs who had dreams, artistic dreams. And I actually think I get much more of that, of like, how do you have a day job and write? You mm -hmm. know, and I, I think that's lovely. And I, uh, I admire them for coming forward that way. Well, you've written about, coming back to this question of choice, you've written about how your parents had you committed to an arranged marriage that you characterize it as the institution you felt locked into as a teenager, and that the main way you escaped it was through imagination and through the imaginary boyfriends. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about um, navigating that and maybe some of the imagined... What, what were your imagined boyfriends like, for instance? Well, I really appreciated Luna Luna magazine um, publishing a, a version of that essay, which... I thought a lot about in terms of Salman Rushdie's beautiful collection, Imaginary Homelands, um, where he talks about what it was like to go back and see his family's pre-partition house in Bombay and also that sense of national loss, you know. Um, so I think uh, for me, imaginary boyfriends were so much about a reminder that... Um, Someone can tell you, yes, this will be your destiny. When it's the right time, a boy will be picked. And um, I appreciate, actually, that my parents were open about it, you know, more open than many people's parents, that they said it has to be an ayer, which is a particular kind of South Indian Brahmin community, because this is what we believe, you know, and um, and there, are, it's sort of like um, I have Jewish friends who said that their parents said similar things like, we will die out. We will die out as a tribe. You know, please don't forsake the project of trying to continue the tribe. Almost like a tribe going extinct in the Amazon, you know? Like, I was like, is that like that, you know? But um, the imaginary boyfriends, you know, and, and it was very hard to actually coalesce anybody into like a real, it's not like all the boys I've loved before where she sort of has imaginary attachments to real people. Like mm -hmm. these were actually imagined people, well, completely you fictional. know, like, like completely like an archetype, like huh. the bohemian, you know, and there would be people I would know who would fit some aspect of that, but I'd actually be quite skeptical. Like, are you really like that? So I think that, um, I think arranged marriage is it's still so alive. I think that's the thing to really point out. It's so durable, and I don't know why. 
really, I think it's fascinating, but it's quite durable and has survived long into India's tech revolution. And Priyanka Chopra is actually going to bring Bumble, this dating app, into India. But what I predict is that people with post profiles saying, uh, wheat skin, Kshatriya boy, Sikhs, same, you know, from a girl raised in a family with at least um, one professional parent or something like that, yeah. you know, I mean, it'll be semi-arranged. So I, I think it must be that there's some kind of tribalism that endures and people want to perpetuate. And um, I don't, I wouldn't judge it, you know, but at the same time, it was liberating for me to not do that. And I'm, I'm very grateful that I wasn't beheaded for not doing that, you know? Like, well, probably possibly the most heartbreaking story for me was the final story, which was a queer couple. And one of the, one of the Indian woman in the couple leaves her girlfriend to go to India to fulfill her parents' wishes for her arranged marriage. I would imagine that you're drawing on some of your own angst growing up with that, that tension and, and demand upon you. But could you talk a little bit more about the final story in that regard? Yeah, I mean, I I really appreciate, um, again, that, you know, that's a story about two queer women. And there's no, um, there's no white male in sight in that story. And yet, m several have told me that they like that story. So I'm so grateful, you know, for that resonance. But um, I think that that story, what I really enjoyed is the juxtaposition of Hindu comic books, which actually um, Jeff Vandermeer connected with me because of that, because he has a huge collection, apparently, of Amar Chitras. And um, that was so formative to me. And so diaspora South Asian kids grow up reading these illustrated renditions of stories from the epics that are really good looking comic books with people with big muscles and weapons and jumping and um, no boobs, unfortunately. But, you know, <laughs> so um, I think, you know, juxtaposing Hindu comic books with the Song of Solomon, which is one of my favorite poems, read as a poem as well as devotional. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, again, it's partly at least through imagination that Nisha the uh, Indian woman character tries to escape her fate. And I, I do think that that idea of destiny and fate being something that presses upon you and you're trying to escape and trying to make terms. I don't think the LA Times reviewer was wrong in terms of feeling that that was there in the story collection because I certainly grappled with it. You studied Sanskrit and Hindu epics at, at Oxford Tell us a little bit about that in and so on its own regard, but also tell us a little bit about it in regards to how it is in conversation with your own narratives. Are, do you borrow um, plot or or um, specific interactions that happen in the epics and and can make them contemporary? Well, uh, in the story collection, the epics are sort of all over the place. In this, you know, like the story of the woman who fell in love with death is um, a really um, changed version of the Savitri story, um, which is a, 
Oh, I'm going to get it wrong. It's either from Mahabharata or Ramayana. Please forgive me, you know, for not knowing. So I'm not going to say which one, but she bargains. She tries to bargain with Yama, the god of death, to save her husband. Um, So I thought for me, an inversion of that story was what if she had fallen in love with the god of death, you know? Um, But um, I think that for better or worse, the epics are so much part of my imagination. And so is um, Sanskrit lyric poetry. And I, I studied it only because every single week in temple and every few days and for every festival, Sanskrit was part of the life of my household. We had a puja room. And I can now use the word puja, P-U-J-A, because Priyanka and Nick had a puja according to Harper's Bazaar. So now that is in Harper's Bazaar that wow. they had a puja for their wedding. And I'm, it's in English now, like the word pukka. You know, it's, it's pretty awesome. So um, I, I, think it, I think, again, as writers, we... Um, to mine the material that really grips us there's no getting away from what sort of shaped us and what made us so they're definitely there but I'm also glad you brought it up because the novel that um, is hopefully going to go out on submission in a few months definitely again mines um, Kalidasa and other Sanskrit poets but in the um, very um, you know, very sort of brash talking voice of a contemporary South Asian American young woman. Um, So I think, I hope that, again, those traditions that shape us, I hope they can live with who we are now. You know, whether it's medicine, whether it's those old epic literary traditions. Um, It's meaningful to me, for example, that, you know, popular culture like Showtime's Billions, borrows from um richard the third you know which i wrote about and which the creators brian koppelman and others wrote back to me saying that is true you know like what you're noticing there we did that on purpose huh that's great yeah well if we if we go back to what we were talking about at the beginning about stories within stories and also you in your real life um having to come up with stories of imagined fictional boyfriends in order to escape some re- some real life uh, I really hope my spouse is demands. not listening to this. <laughs> well, you were 13. You were right? the main one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I also think of I also think about your story Chronicle of a Marriage Foretold. So this woman gets to go on a writing retreat on an island. And this island used to have both men and women on it, but it, there was some previous history of of sexual harassment by men. So the island became an island where women could retreat as only women onto the island and write uninterrupted by men. But the irony of the whole thing is she invents a male character in her story who in a way sort of harasses her imagination. So like she's on this woman-only <laughs> island. She's in her retreat keeps getting interrupted over and over yeah. in this form of literary harassment. He's a heckler. From her yeah. own mind. Yes. Right. So, um, but you also have this, speaking of sort of like toxic imagination, you also have this nonfiction piece called Hot Asian Babes that looks at the way we sort of reiterate the politics out in the world in our own imaginations. And in this case, you're looking at what you call colonial porn. And I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about this piece, what prompted it, and um, and and just and also just tell us about colonial porn. 
I'm so grateful, you know, that Lydia Kiesling, whose own novel, The Golden State, is so magnificent, by the way, a five under 35 awardee. Um, she's the editor of The Millions, who um, took that essay really without any edits, you know, and it was an essay that for me was an act of reclamation because there was sort of all these ideas that I jotted down fragments of in notebooks while going through medical training. And I had this thought in my mind um, before I got sort of now really into my novel that I was going to have to systematically go through this and write every single one. And this one really um, stayed with me because of that moment of shock um, being in an Oxford news candy kind of shop because it was at some point it's sort of funny and sort of sad. At some point, as arranged marriage drew closer and closer, Oxford was really where, you know, it was going to be that it happened, you know, during the second year. I devised this scheme to save my stipend. And so I started living on candy from Oxford shops, candy and crisps, you know, and those were really cheap and saving the rest of it. And, um, it put me in more contact with the townies because I'd go hang out in the library because that was free and so on. And this woman saw me looking at this um, magazine, Hot Asian Babes, which is a real or was a real porno magazine, um, very popular in Britain. And I was just staring at it because I'd never imagined that there was ethnic porn of that kind, although it turns out there's plenty of ethnic porn all over the place, as anyone who has an Internet knows. Um, so I uh, and, and she took my shock as an opportunity to heckle me you know, to say cheap, aren't they? You know, like, what do you possibly say to that? Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you want me to insult other South Asian women, you want me to get offended that maybe you're calling me cheap, because I was called that um, in my 20s at Oxford walking around in, you know, what I thought were really cute outfits. And it was, I guess, I don't I mean, they, they really were not revealing at all. But just to be visible, just to be visible as a woman of color in those very white spaces, um, just to wear leggings under my robes for an exam. And the, the tutor, this white man who harassed a lot of people, said something about it, you know. I mean, just so I think that um, I think it was really important for me to write that piece because it had been there for so long and needed to come out and. Um, it, it's an example, too, of really trusting to what your hand does on the page, because I vividly remember being at McDowell and locking myself into one of those little cubicles that people know about in the library and coming out with that piece written and mm. not intending to write it that night and just kind of writing it. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, one of the fascinating facts about that essay is that the top consumer of that porn um, was white British men. Wow. You know, Which isn't, so, I don't, is that surprising? I don't know. I mean, know. in a weird way, I don't know I if guess. it is. I, I mean, I guess on some level, maybe it's not because it's sort of like the unknown and the other, and that's how I get to have it. To me, it was surprising because of the level of visceral disdain and disgust that I met with growing up um, about my body, you know, and and just the the darkness of it, um, the imagined smell of it, you know, just all of me, all, all of all of the 
group of South Asians that I knew had had experiences like that, even if it was just bringing your lunch to school one day, like Ajimpa Lahiri talks about the self-consciousness of, you know, chutney staining the Wonder Bread and, oh, your sandwich looks green, you know, you're different. So I, I think that's why it surprised me that it, it taught me something about how layered disdain or contempt really is. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe that's a good uh, place to um, jump into the story Orange Popsicle, oh. which um, is sort of a college Kavanaugh-like gang rape situation. Yeah. But what is most notable about the story is is the response of the quote-unquote victim, which is not what I think most people would expect. And this has a resonance with with um, incidents that you've actually witnessed in your own life. And I was hoping maybe you could talk to us about the real-life events behind the story and then the in-the-story considerations of how you wanted to portray both the incident and the aftermath response to the incident. Well, I think one thing, rereading that story recently, um, which was written, so it was written in much earlier form, um, like maybe at the end of my residency. Uh, and then um, I took it out again, you know, revising it before the Kavanaugh hearings and then read it at an event um, after. So just looking at a different time points. Um, I mean, I, I think this idea of extreme vulnerability induced by not following the rules and not being a model minority was pretty interesting to me. And um, Vanessa Hua does something um, I found out later really beautiful with that idea in deceit and other possibilities, you know, where she has this student who is an imposter, Stanford student, or, you know, like just, just lies, you know, and people believe it partly because of Asian model minority stereotypes, you know, so that that was interesting. And similarly, this poor woman, Jainthi, she's only in this class that devolves into a cheating scandal because of this stereotype that being from India, she must be good at science, even though she's a talented visual artist and has no scientific background to speak of, you know? So the, the stereotype confounds her that way, even to be in a vulnerability situation. And then it confounds her again, you know, with this, um, this American guy, making a big deal about how delicate she is, how exotic and delicate she is. And those statements were made to me as an undergrad. I, I remember them vividly. Um, I remember I went through this phase freshman year where people who are listening to this from Yale will remember it too because I was like one of the few people who did this. Um, I decided to wear traditional Indian clothes. I decided to wear salvar kameezes a lot. And um, I had gone through this very glamorous transformation from being very overtly nerdy um, in high school to suddenly realizing vogue and glamour and doing stuff. So um, it was a big deal and people made a big deal about it. And then, um, then the backlash, which I didn't expect, was this hot Asian babes kind of objectification, which it's very, it sounds like an abstract word, but it's very immediate. What it means is people stare at you and say scary things that are scary to hear when you're walking alone at night. Um, so 
I conveyed that sense of danger in the story. And then unfortunately, there was a gang rape at Yale um, that a South Asian woman experienced. And there were horrible accusatory posters put up by white sororities saying she was lying, saying she was trying to destroy the careers of innocent young men. And then um, a professor of mine who I really love, who's, who is a cishet white male, one of those giving us traditions kind of, um, I think I can, I can actually say his name because it was in the papers. He was the head of the committee that looked into it. His name's Jonathan Lear. He's actually um, on, now at the Committee on Social Thought in Chicago. He, he made sure the right things were done, you mm-hmm. know, and um, he did not absolve the men who did this. And the woman in question was able to move on, um, I think, but a lot of the story was created by the space of my allowing her that privacy where I don't actually know exactly how she moved on. The rumor is that she actually moved back to South Asia and became a soap opera actress, which I think is amazing. And I'd love to write that story. But um, I think that the other thing that informed it was Maya Lin's um, Maya Lin being really honored as a Yale graduate um, for both the Vietnam War Memorial, but also a commemorative sculpture that she created to for the anniversary of women at Yale. And just seeing for the first time going there, the possibility of being a woman of color artist, that was very, very meaningful. And I know um, someone I met again at McDowell and knew slightly at Yale, Susan Choi, she was she has been inspiring that way as well, you know. Well, I don't know about the the woman and the real life woman, but the character in Orange Popsicles, sort of. I don't know if it's defiantly, but she remains visible afterwards. She still dresses in in glamorous ways and is out in the world, sort of demanding attention and respect and being seen. It's very it, it's very prominent in the story. And I'm imagining maybe you're imagining into some of that f- based on what you experience. And it's it's my hope. Yeah. You know, but I, I think um, I actually had a really lovely correspondence once with Roxanne Gay after I read Hunger and realized for the first time how much internal kind of covering can happen after incidents like that. And I did it, too. I, you know, there were periods where after experiencing sexual harassment, I decided I was going to eat more. I was going to try to gain weight. I was going to wear different clothes. I was going to do things that obscured. And, um, I think she, she talks about that in hunger after the rape, the terror, the, the rape that she experienced, which was also a gang rape. And I think that, um, it's so important to reclaim Uh, the right to present yourself truly as you choose, whether that's in a tuxedo, whether that's, you know, after an experience like that, because the, the having an experience like that invites you, coerces you into believing that it's something you did by your presentation is something you brought into your life. One of the things that I, I wanted to explore from a craft perspective around this story is you could have written you could have written a story about a gang rape and a woman's def- sort of defiant uh, a refusal to disappear afterwards, 
without including any of the um, stuff around the cheating scandal. But I feel like there's something, and maybe this goes back to our our initial discussion around peripheral details and the way um, marginal things can inform the whole. But she's involved in a cheating scandal. Uh, with She's implicated along with her future rapist, who sort of uses it as leverage. And by being involved in a cheating scandal, we, we learn that she's on a provisional student visa. So she's not an American, and she could be deported, that her life there is very precarious, other than just being a woman of color. Um, but that she's also um, grappling with having done something wrong, which is also happening while she's being wronged in a far worse way. I, I, I'm, I don't know if I have a question here, but I guess I'm interested in that juxtaposition of making her obviously not culpable in any way f- around the sexual violence, but she's dealing with culpability around th- other things that she's chosen simultaneously, which doesn't allow us to settle entirely into uh, categories of good, bad, um, or good evil, or e- even though uh, obviously evil is happening in the story as well. Well, some of it was just the, um, the, the mechanics of how would they enter each other's worlds and how would they enter each other's worlds in an intimate way that made it that much harder for her to have her guard up from the beginning and just not even make eye contact with him. You know, he caught her at a vulnerable point Um, where she was looking for an escape from a high-pressure situation where she thought she was going to fail the next day. So some of it, I guess, was a little bit a story, you know, telling a story. But I think um, probably that idea of, you know, being marred by something, you know, like whether it's cheating or um, in this other story, Newberry, the character, Vinita, um, does some crooked things, you know, even though... She, she uses them in that story, hopefully to ends that other people agree is noble, which is trying to save her very sweet, dreamy poet boyfriend from being deported. You know, I mean, um, I do think that we need we we need and deserve to have that complexity as people of color. I, I, I think that's a little clump clunky and I'm not meaning it in terms of identity politics. It's more like someone saying, um, don't make it so that to be willing to hear our stories we have to be less than human on the page you know don't make it that we have to be fundamentally different um and better to be worth being heard mm-hmm. well before we finish i i would love to give you an opportunity to talk about all the various other things coming down the pike for you as a writer. I'm kind of blown away. Uh, second story collection, a novel, possibly a poetry collection, and also an anthology. Um, would you talk about any of any or all of those? Sure. I mean, I think um, oh, I, I think I, I got a, a chance that I really valued at Duende District in D.C. to talk about, well, how do you how do you do that? How do you get involved in more than one project at a time, let alone, you know, try to write seriously and have a day job? And I think so much of it really comes down to details and God being in the details. Um, so each thing kind of parsed out. Um, I, 
I am very grateful to have been um, pretty well published this year and last year as a poet. Um, uh, One of my poems is Pushcart nominated um, by Sid Riel, which has published Maggie Smith and other poets I love. And then um, another poem received a prize in the Joy Harjo contest from Cutthroat. Um, and I, I feel like I've learned so much from poets I've interviewed for a droit journal, including Victoria Chang, who's just, who gave a very generous blurb for this book as well. Um, and hopefully another interview I'm doing with Patricia Spears Jones, whom I recommend everyone go out and read. She just got a major, um, prize from poets and writers. So, um, it's something I'd been working on for a while. It exists, and whether or not to publish it as a chapbook, um, I think I'd like to try. Um, my agent says, no, just write more poems and publish it as a full book. But I think having a community and, and being part of a poetry community and the friends I have who are poets whose work I love, like Roy Guzman um, or Rajiv Mohabir, who I interviewed recently as well, um, they really have given me something that has fed my fiction as well. Mm. I think it's it's really valuable um, to have poetry in your life. And I just I'm not I can't say enough good about the what people call the renaissance of interest in poetry and you know Fatima Asghar's beautiful collection selling out in Target and Danae Smith you know winning that major major prize or Jericho Brown being in this week's New York Times magazine you know these are poets I adore so that exists and there's no timeline on that and then um similarly um flames under our skin um is kind of either going to be just a web anthology or a a piece that Elle magazine is interested in having some writer, women of color, friends and I kind of put together. So then it may end up being a smaller project. And then um, the second story collection is a set of linked stories, um, some of which have been published in Joyland and elsewhere on this interracial marriage between an an Indian American uh, physician and her white eco-conservationist husband. And I got really interested in this idea of, um, you know, on the one hand, someone trying to do good, like trying to save the Everglades and so on, but really not seeing how he himself internalized so many attitudes that are problematic and kind of controlling and not really healthy so but it's a it's a marriage that evolves over time and I'm just interested in writing about marriage in general and just living with someone for a long time and what that's like there's a beautiful memoir um, coming out by Rima Zaman whom I read with here on the opposite of that the disillusion of a marriage the realization of an absence and she had this phrase last night about the habits, you know, growing into each other's habits as part of the joy of marriage. But then I also think in terms of can, is, is it different when it's an interracial marriage where both sides are so conscious of their difference? You know, how does that then affect the ability to ever settle home? Um, so, and then finally, um, the novel, so I actually wrote this novel um, 
right when I finished residency. And it's gone through many permutations. People who know me will say, wasn't that supposed to come out in? And I'll say, yes, it was. And we leave it at that. (laughs) So, you know, I I think what's nice about um, having another job that I'm really committed to is that I could afford to write things and cook them for a pretty long time. And now with publishing the story collection, feel more empowered to start sending stuff out. But this literally was a bunch of manuscripts in a drawer that for no other purpose than just enjoyment of craft, I would take out and work on every night and not expect much, you know, like, and not and not have to be like, I have to sell this or I can't pay rent. But it know? sounds like it could be the decade of Chaya Mbuvanesha oh, right. <laughs> coming up. <laughs> it, was, well. it, was great. <laughs> it was great having you on the show today. Better that than the decade of Trump is what I'll say yes, to that. <laughs> for sure. We've been talking today to writer Chaya Bhuvaneshwar about her debut collection from Dezank, White Dancing Elephants. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Chaya Bhuvaneshwar's work can be found at chayabhuvaneshwar.com. I've also uploaded a poem and a conversation about singing and a song by Chaya Bhuvaneshwar to the bonus archive. This joins bonus material by Carmen Maria Machado, Therese Marie Myatt, Sheila Hetty, Laylee Longsoldier, Forrest Gander, John Keane, Jen Bervin, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>